Have you noticed that? If you've lived long enough, uh, we are thankful for the forgiveness of God. And if it were not for his forgiveness, obviously, we would not have eternal life uh, above all. But uh, even in living our lives for him, uh, the mark of sin oftentimes follows us, the various marks, uh, depending on what it is, of course, uh, throughout our days. In fact, you probably have uh, occasions where you're reminded of that. Things come up and it reminds you of, of something that the Lord has uh, brought you through. A, number of year, a lot of years ago now, uh, I had a couple, it was when we lived in Arkansas, they asked me if I would uh, be willing to drive an ambulance. I was kind of shocked when they asked me. They were EMTs, and I said, well, I don't know anything about EMT stuff. I don't know how to drive, but, well, of course, some people might dispute that, but uh, I know how to drive. I don't know how to turn on the sirens and the lights, although I think I'd kind of like that. Uh, they said, well, once in a while we get stuck, and we need a third person to, to go with the ambulance. Would you, would you be willing to do that? And I said, sure. Well, the first call... They wanted me to go with them to take a young man to the, uh, the uh, hospital in Fayetteville from, from where we lived in Gravit, Arkansas, over in the corner of the state. It was a young man named Jeff. He was about 20 years of age. It was the first, actually the first time I saw him, I helped, uh, I helped one of the EMTs hold his head between sandbags in the ambulance ride from, from Gravit all the way to, to Fayetteville to keep his spinal cord from being twisted. It had been, it was around the 4th of July. Jeff had, had gotten loaded up with alcohol and drugs. And uh, he was uh, swimming in a, in a relatively clear stream over by Knoll, uh, Missouri. And I don't know whether he didn't look. Uh, anyway, he did a flying dive into water that was a grand total of a foot deep. So you can imagine the outcome of that. The result was that Jeff, had, Jeff uh, and that, again, that was his name, caused permanent damage to his spinal column at the base of his neck. Never forget the doctors there in Fayetteville running these uh, pointy things that rolled on his chest to see where the feeling stopped, and it was up fairly close to his neck. He had no feeling from here all the, all the rest of the way down. The last time I actually saw him again, a time or two after that, about a year later, I saw him after that accident during one of his frequent trips to the hospital in the, in the local area. He had gone from being a healthy 20-year-old, healthy and strong, to emaciated and feeble, uh, kind of like somebody that was 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years older than he was. The point is, it's true that the young man could come to Christ and his sin would be forgiven through the cross of Jesus Christ, but in all likelihood, if not most, of his physical problems would persist till the day he dies. And I don't know if he's still living or not. Uh, that would have been, oh, let's see, Ryan's 44, so that would have been about 42 years ago, I guess, uh, that, that that would have taken place. So in this uh, section this morning in Genesis, I'd like for us to look at two consequences of sin that, uh, that we find. The first is uh, they recognize their sinfulness in verses 7 and 8. Uh, the two consequences there begin with this. In verse 7 says, Then the eyes of them both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Of this passage, what do you think of this commentator, the way he, he tried to convince his readers of this, that this is speaking of the ordinary experience of transition from the innocence of childhood to the knowledge which belongs to the adult age. How do you like that? Explained it away, said all this is, is just the normal routine of passing from childhood to adulthood, and this just describes that. Doesn't fit as you read through Genesis, uh, Genesis here. Uh, it it uh, doesn't match up with the text there. It doesn't, well, I guess it's, if you're trying to explain away the text, uh, perhaps it might be a way to do that. The fact of the matter is that Adam and Eve now saw for the first time that they were stripped of their former purity and recognized their lack of clothes in that context as you move on ahead there on the slides. Uh, they didn't do as the anthropologist claimed. They didn't become ashamed as their culture advanced. How do I know that? They were the culture uh, I was going to say it hadn't advanced very far as far as culture was concerned uh, because that, that was the first of it. Uh, had anyone ever worn clothes before? Not prior to that time they hadn't. Uh, so they hadn't even seen clothes, much less given any thought of what their wardrobe would be uh, after that or up to that point. So... It indicates to us that, uh, and we talked about this some on Wednesday night in Dustin's class, indicates to us that missionaries are not merely imposing Western ideals on indigenous people in the tropics when they encourage or uh, aid them in uh, wearing clothes. Uh, Paul and we've talked with Paul several times. What was your experience with that? Uh, what was the progression of clothes wearing and and uh, w with folks that... Uh, didn't know the gospel, hadn't been exposed to the gospel, and what happened with that, if you don't mind sharing that. Can you guys hear? Back there in the back? Okay. 100% of the time, uh, whenever they put their, because we didn't teach you must wear clothing, because we didn't want to teach them uh, works salvation. So, uh, but immediately when they put their trust in the Lord without question, they, they wanted to be clothed. Kind of, kind of interesting uh, from, from a culture, or as Paul was, was with that culture, that uh, they didn't have to be taught to put on clothes. Uh, they wanted to put on clothes uh, when they established a right relationship with God, God through faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, actually, could, would it be said that those, in, those, uh, those indigenous folks were uh, formerly living in innocence? Would that be a, an accurate thing? So, in other words, much of the world would say, well, they're innocent, and uh, they need to be taught this other. Well, that wasn't the case. Uh, that's the other extreme rather than innocence. It's of a, of a culture who's gone the other direction rather than one who's uh, coming toward, toward clothing, I guess you could say, rather than going the other way. So these are examples of degeneration in a microcosm of civilization rather than uh, the other way around. With the shame of Adam and Eve, or the sin of Adam and Eve, came the first manifestation of shame. Shame always follows sin, 
and is a natural consequence. One of the reasons why people who live in sin continually are miserable despite the fact that they try desperately to cover it up. Uh, it is a result, a natural consequence of sin. Uh, for instance, you think about folks uh, in certain lifestyles and you wonder if they experience shame anymore. You think, well, they've lived that, that way so long, they're not ever ashamed of themselves. Uh, if you took, for instance, a, a survey of people who, say, modeled for pornographic pictures, how many do you think would say they were not ashamed of them? Would there be some? Sure. Uh, there would be some who would say they weren't ashamed. But I, as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but wonder, how many of them would be delighted to take a picture of themselves over to their sweet, saintly, church-going grandmother's house and show it to her? Uh, probably most, and I haven't taken a worldwide survey of that, uh, obviously, but I highly doubt that most would not be ashamed to do that uh, if asked to do so. What, always, what tends to happen, though, over a course of time if we sin long enough? What happens to your conscience? Do what? It becomes seared. What does that mean, to have a seared conscience? Desensitized. Good, good definition. Uh, a seared conscience is a term we use for the time when our formerly sensitive inner voice of caution becomes silent. You know, the, the, the voice in the back of your head that says, eh, that might not be the best thing to do, or that might not be the thing not to do. Uh, then over the course of time, we override that enough times, and then what happens? We're desensitized, and we tend to say, ah, it's not a big deal anymore. I've done this so long, and don't give it any thought. As Adam and Eve knew full well what happened, God soon came into their space in the garden. When was it that, that this took place, uh, time-wise, according to or, or uh, in, in the text there? In the evening? How do you know that? In the cool of the day. Uh, ancient Near Eastern countries, oftentimes the wind would blow at that time. Actually, the term that used there can be translated wind or spirit, ruach, the same word. Uh, it would be an example, it could be an example of the pre pre-incarnate Christ here uh, appearing uh, walking there in the garden, or it could also be a, a, a human characteristic given to God to help us better understand his person or his action here uh, in the Garden of Eden. It could be either one, uh, the appearance here. This reaction is instruction to us, is instructive to us. How did Adam and Eve react? Do what? They did. They split. They hid uh, in the garden. It's almost funny to think of that, isn't it? Hiding from God. Uh, what's the chances of that working? What's the chances of that working today? Does, do people ever try to hide from the Lord? I, I vaguely recall a young man of 20 hiding in a university of 25,000 students. Uh, some of you, maybe somewhere along the line, have done the same. Uh, how'd that work out for you? 
Doesn't work very well, does it? Well, it didn't work for them either, obviously. Adam and Eve knew that their leaf skirts were not adequate. Uh, I, as I read that, I was wondering, I wonder how they figured out how to do that. Uh, did they know how to sew? Well, I guess they learned. Uh, of course, they would have been exceptionally bright. Yes, Philip? Okay, were you all, could you hear that back there in the back? Would you say that a little bit louder so Steve can understand? <laughs> Thanks. Um, so when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them like infants. He created them fully grown and fully mature with perfect knowledge. But not without, but not with knowledge of sin. They didn't have knowledge of sin until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they would have had the mental equipment to figure that out uh, on, on that occasion. Uh, this, this passage early in the Bible also begins to show us some of the truth of statements like found in John chapter 6, verse 44. John 6, 44 says, uh, no one can come to me, that's the Lord, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one is literally able to or has the ability to uh, come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. It's kind of interesting the term he uses there for draw uh, is, is a pretty strong one. It has, is translated as to tug or to draw or to drag, literally. Uh, so it's, it's pretty forceful, the term that's used there. Uh, some cases it's used as a legal technical term. If you were to drag somebody into court, you have a mental picture of what that might be like. Uh, or a strong pull in a mental or a moral life to draw or to attract uh, individuals. So did, uh, did Adam and Eve go looking for God? We already said that he didn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, they were trying to hide from him. They were trying to get as far away from him as they could, even though obviously it would have been impossible for them to go far enough so they, reach, uh, they outran the reach of God. But God took the initiative to reach out to them rather than the other way around, and it's still true today. So uh, they refused to admit their sinfulness in verses 10 through 13. And as, you, as we read 10 through 13, uh, you can just see that happening, uh, that kind of verbiage uh, in our speech sometimes. The Lord said, or excuse me, Adam said there in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, this is God speaking in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said... Don't look at me. No, she didn't say that. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God called them on the carpet, and as the dialogue begins, we can immediately see that God was not asking these questions for his own benefit. Was he? Did God ask these questions because he didn't know? He did know. Uh, he knew perfectly well that this was for their benefit and for ours. It appears as if God was giving Adam and Eve an opportunity to admit their guilt 
And God pursued the topic as far as they would answer. Uh, did you know that admit, admitting guilt when you're actually guilty of something is giving glory to God? Not, normally, we don't think in those kind of terms, but uh, Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. Many of you remember the account of Achan. What do you remember about Achan from jo uh, Joshua chapter 7? Achan did die, yes. Uh, what was the reason that Achan died? All right, the Israelites were coming into the promised land. They were going to take the city of Jericho. And their specific command was that they were not to take anything to keep for themselves. Well, when, when they went in, Achan decided he was going to take some things for himself. He took some uh, silver. Uh, let's see, he took a Babylonian garment and some other stuff. Don't remember the rest of it. Uh, that would have been plenty by itself. And then the next, next uh, little bit, uh, the Israelites got beat by a little town called... AI, uh, AI. in fact, it was so small that the, that the commander, uh, Joshua, said, we'll just use 3,000 men. It's such a dinky town, we're not, that's paraphrase, rough paraphrase. That's such a dinky town, we're not going to mess with sending a whole bunch of, our, our soldiers are tired, we'll send 3,000. They got beat by the little town of AI and their soldiers, and they were... Uh, Aghast, they could hardly believe it. The Lord informed them that somebody had taken some stuff and kept it, uh, as opposed to what the Lord said for them to do. And uh, then they were to draw lots, and whose name eventually came out of that? Achan was his name. And in Joshua 7, verses 19 and 20, it says, Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the God, Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. How was he supposed to give glory to God and praise to him? In the next sentence. Tell us what you have done. Do not hide it from me. In other words, uh, confess what it is that you have done, and that will give glory and praise to God as opposed to hiding it or trying to hide it. Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Uh, we don't normally think in those kinds of terms that uh, confession of sin gives glory to God or praise to God, but it does. Uh, it did in that account, and it still does today. The penalty for Achan, how severe was it? <laughs> he died. Uh, he was put to death. And uh, so uh, he did give glory to God uh, on that occasion. Now, consider back in the Genesis 3 passage, uh, God says, where are you? What was uh, Adam's answer? I'm hiding. I was afraid because I had no clothes on. God's next question, who told you that you, uh, who told you so? What was, that, Adam, what was God's answer, or Adam's answer, rather? No answer. Adam didn't, didn't answer the question. Thirdly, did you do what I told you not to do? 
Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat of? And his answer? Did he actually answer the question? He didn't actually answer the question. He said, she did it. She She made me. Well, he doesn't say it exactly like that, but that's the implication. Do you suppose Adam and Eve really thought that they could hide from the Lord? I, I guess we don't really know what they thought or didn't think. We're not told that. But it is a good lesson for us, what, what is uh, the interchange here, a lesson on how not to try to snow the Lord or your parents or your boss or anybody else. Uh, notice the progression. Adam, the woman that you gave to me to be with me, she gave to me and I ate. So where does he put himself in the, uh, in, in the progression there? Who's first? Who's first at fault? The woman that you gave to me, uh, she gave to me, and I ate. It's like minimized his part in it and maximized his wife's part. You will notice again that he placed himself last in order of priority and significance in hopes of drawing attention away from his own guilt, uh, as if... The Lord wouldn't see through all of that. Uh, Obviously, he did. But notice the ultimate person that he's putting the blame on. Who is he ultimately blaming? Ultimately, he's blaming the Lord, the, uh, the Lord God. To Eve, then, God said, what have you done? Well, did she actually answer? Her inferred answer is, don't look at me. The serpent fooled me, and then I ate. Actually, what she said was true enough. The serpent fooled her, and then I ate, but uh, not really, not like Achan, giving great praise and glory to God. Uh, rather, uh, she, she just tried to pass it off. Who created the serpent, by the way? God did. So who does she seem to be implicating in her sin? Seems to be implicating the Lord also. Is that really so different from us on some occasions? Like, for instance, God, the only reason I did it was because you gave me the natural desire to see or do that particular thing, or so I did it. Or, God, if you had not let Adam and Eve sin, I wouldn't have this problem. Uh, We wouldn't say that, would we? Probably, but our thinking might run in in that direction. Or, God, if you hadn't let me be born with this physical or mental problem, I wouldn't be so depressed continually. Many of our excuses in the area of sin ultimately are laid upon the shoulders of the Lord if we follow follow those things through to their logical conclusion. Uh, that uh, sometimes it's almost as if we're blaming the Lord. You're the one who could have delivered me from this circumstance. So, uh, again, uh, mentally, or uh, we would probably not make that kind of an accusation, but we might tend to think along those lines. Parents early on see this inclination in their children as their children try to divert blame uh, for their sin, don't they? I'll give you an illustration. Are Jenny and are Sarah here? I was. We, we are here. Are, you're here. We have work 
I'm going to tell a story on them, and they don't know. I, I normally ask their permission, but they're not here, so I can't ask them, so I'll just have to tell you anyway, right? I'm glad I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. On one occasion, years and years ago, Sarah came running in to mom. She was little, saying, Jenny hit me, Jenny hit me. Ryan, does that sound kind of normal? Yep. <laughs> He's not here. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs> so mom sent her back to her room, then quietly followed behind her. When Jenny went, Sarah went back in the room, she pulled Jenny's hair, and Jenny yelled for mom. Mom came into the room and asked Jenny, what did you do to Sarah? The answer, she pulled my hair. Mom, did you hit her? Her first answer was no, and then she changed it to, I just bopped her on the head. <laughs> was she trying to pass the blame there? And was Sarah trying to pass the blame? Yes. Uh, we do those kinds of things, even as adults from time to time, uh, blame our stuff on others. Accepting blame and realizing one's sinful actions and attitudes are among the first prerequisites for salvation, aren't they? Who are some of the most difficult people to witness to that you've found in your experience? Do I, well, your own family, yes. What about as far as spiritual things are concerned? Or moral things, moral people. Do you find moral, people that are super moral uh, are often very difficult to talk to about uh, being sinners and in need of a savior? What do, they, what do they tend to think? You run into any of those? Somebody that's really a moral person, a nice person, treats people well, is well-liked, why do, why do they oftentimes have, have problems Dealing with the issue of salvation. Their behavior. their behavior. And specifically, what about their behavior? They think they're good. They think they're good. Why, what are they comparing themselves to? Everybody else, and particularly, they find somebody who's really, really, really bad. Say, well, I'm really, really, really good compared to them. Uh, what's the problem with that? Who should they be comparing themselves to? The Lord Jesus, and obviously they don't measure up to that. They're not perfect, even though they may be nice. Uh, and uh, so, in other words, coming to realize that they're sinners and acknowledge that they're a sinner uh, is, is very difficult for some folks to do. Uh, there are others. Yes, Paul? Interesting. So you better not stay around your kids that you've never sinned because your kids know otherwise. <laughs> One thing's common. Not only do uh, none of us have perfect children, but none of our children had perfect parents either. Uh, unless some of you, well, anyway, we won't pursue that. So this would indicate, too, by the way, the, the need for the idea of repentance, which, of course, depends on our realization and acknowledgement of our guilt before a just and holy God. You're never going to be saved if you never see a need to. 
If you don't think that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, uh, you won't be saved until such time as, as you come to that realization. Uh, some of this, this idea of passing the blame, if I have an obsession with some sinful activity, can I blame it on heredity? For instance, say my, my family is not the case, but if my family were alcoholics for the last four generations, could I say the reason I continue in that vein is because of my heredity, because of those who went before me, my parents, grandparents, and so forth. Can you use that as a good excuse? Or a reason? I guess you can use it, but not legitimately so, uh, because we are responsible for our own. Uh, we are responsible for our own behavior. Or if I have, if I'm having a tr- trouble at school, then surely the problem must lie with somebody in my class. Somebody's distracting me, or the teacher does this, or the teacher does that. Uh, none of you ever came up with any of those excuses, did you? <laughs> or the dog ate my paper. I heard that a few times. I taught for a few years. Uh, and dogs got blamed for a lot of things. The biblical way, however, of dealing with our own sin is not what did the other person do, but what did, what did I do, uh, rather than what did the other guy do. I can't, uh, I can't cause him to have a change of heart, him or her, but I can uh, myself as I turn that over to the Lord, as I confess it to him. The Lord takes a dim view of trying to pass off our sins and shortcoming by blaming somebody else. Instead, the Bible shows time after time again that God desires for us to come before him and confess that sin and turn from it. The prophet Hosea, and we're going to quit there for today. The prophet Hosea prophesied during the days of Jeroboam II of Israel Jeroboam II was another one of the many kings of Israel of whom it was said, he did that which was, was it good or evil? Evil Evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam uh, who made Israel to sin. In Hosea 8, uh, the text says, beginning at verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because... They have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So that was the case for the northern ten tribes. They had sinned against the Lord. They had rejected him and turned from him. It says, to me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. But Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So where had the northern ten tribes come as far as their come to as far as their worship was concerned? What were they worshiping at that time? What what kind of idol specifically? A calf. Uh, if you go to Israel today and you visit up north, up in the headwaters where the headwaters of the Jordan River are, uh, right on the border there, you can see, Le- uh, let's see, it's uh, Syria, uh, right across the line there. Uh, in Well, there's not a visible line painted, but uh, right there was one of the golden calf centers, worship centers, and so that's what they were worshiping. Rather than, rather than the Lord God. They had rebelled against him, 
They set up ungodly kings of their own choosing. They made idols for themselves, and they reeked of golden calf worship. Then it says in verse 7, for they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwinds. The standing grain has no heads. It will yield no flour. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. So the word picture there is throwing seeds into the wind with the result being what? If you threw, you're out planting your, if you were out planting your yard, planting seeds in your yard yesterday, what would have happened? Your neighbors would have had a lovely lawn. <laughs> neighbors would have had a lovely lawn, and what the wind didn't get, the wind would have taken care of. Uh, it would not have achieved uh, what was meant meant to be. Uh, one author describes. Uh, this, this uh, saying here, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. God says that Israel has planted wind and would harvest a whirlwind. Taking the wind to mean something worthless and foolish, we can surmise that Israel's foolishness in the past would result in a veritable storm of consequences. And that's certainly what happened with Israel, that there were great consequences that took place uh, from their sowing that they did. And then skipping down to verse 13, you have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Adam and Eve planted wickedness, and what did they reap? They reaped evil, ate the fruit of lies because they trusted in their own way. And what's the consequence of that? Can you give testimony to the consequence of Adam and Eve's actions back, back when? Absolutely. Uh, you've probably already experienced it today. Uh, I don't know. You look pretty, pretty innocent here. No, uh, it doesn't take much. Somebody may have pulled out in front of you on the way into church this morning, and you had a, a wake-up call or a reminder, although you didn't know we were going to look at this. To experience God's blessings, we need to sow righteousness, reap in mercy. And he talks about breaking up the fallow ground. What does that mean? What is fallow ground? Some of you are far, have farmed or are gardeners. Hard, uh, hard ground. Hard ground? Uh, what would fallow ground look like? Anybody? Hard hearts, but, but I, uh, the physical, what would be the physical look of fallow ground? Dry, crusty. Dry, crusty. Uh, yeah, pretty much dry, crusty, useless ground. Weeds? Definitely overgrown. Weeds, overgrown, not cared for, whatever ground looks like, and it depends on where you are. If you have crummy dirt, you can't even grow weeds, uh, or not very good ones. Uh, and uh, so he says... Uh, that we must sow righteousness, weep in mercy, and break up the fallow ground, a word picture for our hearts. Uh, they become that way. How would, what would cause my heart to become fallow ground as a believer? What does it take for your heart to become like that uncared for field or yard? Maybe you've got somebody in your neighborhood that never mows their yard, never does anything to their yard. 
What does, it, what does it take for your heart to become like that, figuratively speaking? Not in the word. Not in the word? Or not listening to the Holy Spirit or being submissive to his leading? What else? Continuing in sin? Uh, there's several, several ways that we can contribute to that. Actually, to do nothing as far as spiritual things are concerned. It's a good way for it to become fallow, uh, like, like land that's untended and uncared for. No matter what residue or fallout is left in our lives as a result of a sinful past or earlier life, the best is yet to come as we turn to Him, as we ask Him for forgiveness of our sins, and we desire to forsake that sin, He will enable us to be blessed. How about other comments, maybe, or observations? You could probably have a, quite a few on that conversation that Adam and Eve had with God in the, in the garden there. That is not unusual to see that kind of an exchange. It's not unusual for us to use that kind of exchange to make excuses for ourselves. Anybody? All right. Let's, yes, Philip? Excuse me. A little louder? Sorry. Okay, good. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for this lesson from Adam and Eve. Help us not to make excuses for our sin. Help us instead to deal with it, to plow up our fallow ground when our heart becomes that way, and to turn it upside down and examine it and ask you to be working in our heart and life and get in your word fellowship together with other believers, and uh, pray. Get back to the basics of the Christian life, and you will bless us as a result. Thank you for each one here this morning. Pray that you'll work in each one of our hearts and lives in ways that only you know and that we know about, and uh, pray that you'll encourage us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. We're dismissed.